Uh, this is Robert Picardo, and when I'm not aboard the Federation Starship Voyager, I spend my free time listening to Women at War. Actresses. What a bunch of sad saps we are, I thought. Madly in love with the child. Madly in love with the craft. Trying desperately to forge an alliance between the two and constantly failing. If I were a man, I said to myself, none of this would be in question. My children would respect me, my wife would honor me, and everyone would exalt the work. But turn the knife just slightly to the left, and what you have is a harried woman sneaking out before dawn, cracking the whip for 16 hours on a soundstage, creeping back home under cover of night, forever explaining, forever apologizing, forever in conflict. Picasso wasn't in conflict. You can bet your bottom dollar on that. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. Today, I am here with Andy. Hi. Grace. Sup, nerds. And our special guest, Amy. Hi, everybody. She's back. Yay. So uh, before we get into our main topic today, which is Kate Mulgrew's memoir, Born with Teeth, we have a little bit of housekeeping, which is, as usual, we want to remind you about our Patreon. We are completely listener-supported here at Women at Warp, and every little bit helps to allow us to do convention reporting and have business cards printed and upgrade equipment and sound better, hopefully. And uh, we have some big plans in the works, so... If you are interested in supporting us on a monthly basis, head over to patreon.com slash women at warp. Support us. See what works we have in store. Ooh. And there, yeah, there's some content too that gets up on that Patreon feed that uh, generally doesn't get released into the iTunes or Google Play feed. Such sites we have to show you. So there's some special stuff there, too. In terms of conventions, our convention season is pretty much over. Uh, the day this is released will be the last day of New York Comic Con, where Amy and I will be, and the last day of Geek Girl Con, where Grace and Andy will be. Look at us rocking out all over the place. From, from one coast to another. And Amy, you have a special event coming up as well. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I do. I will be at the Brooklyn Historic Society on October 24th. That is a Tuesday. It's at uh, 7 p.m. I will be doing a panel called Nerd is No Longer Niche. It is with Susanna Polo, who founded the Mary Sue, Jill Pantazzi of the Nerdy Bird, somebody Francillian of, of Black Girl Nerds, and it's hosted by Anjali Crochet of Ms. Foundation and also Black Girl Nerds. So we're going to be talking about how women are represented in nerd culture and how it is we are still asking for a representation even though it has moved into the mainstream or perhaps because it has moved into the mainstream. That sounds super awesome. But why don't we jump into it and start talking about Born With Teeth? Where should we start? There's so much. Normally in a, a book club episode, we would give sort of a, a general summary of the plot of the book. However, seeing as this is a memoir, the plot is Kate's life. So <laughs> there's not really a, a plot summary to be given, but there are certainly... Not uh, a plot, but definitely a story. Yes. <laughs> and But there are certainly some, some themes that keep recurring. And I think the one, a, a great place to start is, is family and her relationship uh, to her mother and then as a mother to her children. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the, the book is mostly about, to me, the book becomes more about like families, white religious families in the Midwest is how I feel it's about. And I see a lot of parallels when I was reading it. I see a lot of parallels to people in my own family and kind of my own family experiences, which was nice to see. It, it was it resonated. It resonated a lot. And uh, Andy, what is your um, what is your heritage? And Kate is obviously Irish all the way. I'm super, super Dutch, like ludicrously Dutch. Like there's footage somewhere that I hope I have buried properly of me doing the clomping dance, you know, with the big oh wooden my shoes, God. with oh like no. the hat, the 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 little corner the hat with the corners on it, and how do I tulips. get this? 
Yeah, um, I, oh, I think man. I hid it from my mom, and I think it's somewhere in my apartment, but maybe... Folks, we were just talking about Patreon content. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Yeah, so... Oh, my. That's my answer. Super Dutch. Clomp and dance. Dutch. <laughs> that's insane. I thought I was German, yo, but that is that is just... <laughs> well, the thing is, is my, my, my mom and my grandma, when, they, when my mom was growing up, they were living in Holland, Michigan, which is like the largest population of Dutch people outside of the actual Netherlands. Like the... What do you not say? In Holland? In Holland to Michigan? Wow. That's really funny <laughs> because I'm from Holland, Pennsylvania. Oh, that was our little town in, in Bucks County. So I'm not from from there. It was like where I got spent my teens. Holland, PA, we had all of these uh, very Dutch road names near us. So like the whole Pennsylvania Dutch thing is also very strong. Yeah, uh, West Michigan in general. I mean, when you get to the V's in the phone book, it's like 20 pages long with all the vans and the vanders. Wow. So, yeah, that's the background. And my family up until my mom, who became the hippie black sheep, was super conservative and super religious. So uh, I, I I think the Irish thing that Kate is describing, I think there are some cultural differences, but a lot of them are very similar. So it was it was kind of cool to, to read about her childhood and, and just think about how much it reminded me of the women in my family. Well, I would say that it sounds like Kate's mom might have been a bit of the black sheep in her family, as well. She was definitely... And possibly just kind of a black sheep in general. <laughs> but especially for for the time that she's described in, she's definitely, like, not the average Irish housewife, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Definitely not. She seemed super smart and super rebellious and super aware. And definitely encouraged her children to be the same way. Yeah. She sounds like a wild card. Considering she had so many children, I think I think she just was, seemed like she was born like out of time, you know, like in the wrong era. Yeah, but the same can be said for a lot of women of that era who were just kind of like, well, this is what I've got to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But definitely she's the one who took the ending of uh, having to be the baby machine the best, I think. <laughs> because we got that great little bit in the book about her um, her having her final child and what she does with her ovaries, decoration-wise, which I really appreciated. <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories, I think, in this book. The the pickle jar with the ovaries in them and the piece of tape on it with it written from whence you sprang up on the mantle. Like, it's amazing. It. And I want to know what happened to it. <laughs> like, <laughs> is that an heirloom that's still in the family? <laughs> Well, it wouldn't surprise me. I feel like there's a time-honored tradition of holding on to family body parts. <laughs> what? You don't know fun until you've introduced someone to your grandma's teeth. Oh, God. <laughs> we, my mom has my baby teeth, but no other organs, thank you. Yeah, I can't say that we collect body parts in my family. Thank goodness. Just, just cornered hats and wooden shoes. My family just passes them around. What? <laughs> My dad has my sister's kidney. Oh, yeah. Well, that's okay. That's a good one. Then <laughs> passing them around, I like that. So I think that the women having control over their reproduction, you know, having that ability, especially in Kate's generation, you know, that speaks to the difference between the generation, her mother's generation, and her generation, where she was, you know, you know, and and we now in this generation are given the opportunity to, you know, control whether or not we get pregnant and. It can uh, spare us a lot of heartache, and it can also spare us a lot of issues, you know, something that we might not necessarily want if we want to still be, like, sexual beings, which Kate obviously is. (laughs) She got on stage in Vegas, and she was like, let's talk about sex. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) Probably the most time-honored and traditional way to control women is through pregnancy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. And definitely for her her mother's generation, I think it was a time of well, you get married and then you're a housewife and then you're a mother, especially if you're Irish Catholic. Especially then. <laughs> and it's amazing the difference that there is in just one generation along those lines. And also having grown up Catholic and I think I might be the only one of us for that did. 
Um, there's this whole push in, in the church, you know, especially if you attend Catholic school, it's like, you have to be pro-life. You have to like support the church's teachings. And I know a lot of us girls did not. Mm. <laughs> and I know we had some really great teachers who are, who are not nuns. I had a couple nuns in high school. I went to an all girls Catholic high school. And, uh, thankfully I had a health teacher who said, now go close the door. <laughs> so I can tell you that it's okay if you need to go Planned Parenthood or go get a, some birth, you know, get a birth control and be smart about not getting SEDs and all that. Good Te- for her. Teenagers will always have sex. Always. You cannot stop people. You cannot stop teenagers from having sex. So you should just throw as many condoms in their direction as possible and try and make sure that they're doing it as safe <laughs> as possible. Agreed. Agreed. Prohibiting something is the surest way to make sure that it happens. Yes. No. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see how Kate kind of bucked that tradition, even though she was clearly very entrenched in it. Well, she did, I guess we'll we'll talk about it right now. She did get pregnant very young. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And decided to give that child up for adoption and then spent quite a long time trying to reconnect with her or just find out anything about her daughter. Mm hmm. So yeah, clearly some of the, I mean, you know, she called her mom and her mom said, well, go to Catholic services. That was what, that was the option, I guess. Her mom didn't see the, any other option. That that probably influenced her too. I mean, you know, that's what happens when you have a traumatic situation. If your mom is alive and somebody you can talk to, you're probably going to call her. Yeah. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Catholic services! Oh, God. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah. Not based on Kate's experience, anyway. No. Not based on mine, either. It, from all I've heard, it's not a great way to go. But yeah, you especially have an experience here. Right after this book was published, um, a little over a year ago, I feel like there was a lot of criticism in some from some feminist reviews about the book being pro-life. And I'll just say that I, I don't read it that way. I feel that Kate is relaying a very personal decision and saying that she could not have had an abortion and that's, you know, it's her decision to make. That's what being pro-choice is. That is her choice. She is definitely pro-choice. She is not Um, pro-life. Well, see, I I had heard that as well, but according to some research, she has been awarded uh, by a feminist pro-life organization. But whatever the case is, I, I would say that the book does not push an agenda. It's merely relaying her experiences. So if, if you had heard that, anybody out there, and didn't pick it up because of what you heard, I, I don't know how much stock I'd put in that. I agree. Well, talking about adoption and Catholic services is partially why I'm here uh, on this podcast. I am adopted. I was adopted through Catholic services. And... It made for a very interesting uh, experience to know that Kate had gone through kind of the inverse of what I had gone through. Um, I tried to find my biological family about mm, five years ago now. It took a couple of years for them to get their act together, and it was kind of a fluke that I uh, that I even managed to find them. But I, I found some family on my biological mother's side, so that was uh, that was uh, an interesting experience going in and reading Kate's book then, because this is somebody obviously I've admired since I was young and. For her to have, I didn't, I knew she had given up a daughter. I did not know any of the circle. nobody knew any of the circumstances surrounding it until they read this book. But just having that personal experience was, is, I feel like it connected me to somebody who I found to be my personal inspiration in a whole other level. It was, it was really kind of touching and, and I felt like I wanted to give her a hug. <laughs> Because she was so upset, you know, and she was, she sounded like it was something that had really plagued her and weighed on her conscience. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, My mom actually gave up a baby as well. And around the same time, she was 19, and I think her and Kate are about the same age. Um, And when I was probably six or seven, eight, that area, um, we, my brother reached out and connected with my mom for the first time and I'll never forget that phone call because I didn't even know I had a brother and she had just kind of been letting this this big thing weigh her down for years and years and years and 
didn't feel comfortable talking to me while I was still a kid, but always wanted to meet her son, always was worried that, you know, was he happy? Was he being taken care of? Did she make the right decision? And then not knowing was just crushing her. And she finally got that phone call and she turned to me and she was just crying and she was just like, I feel like a huge weight has been lifted off me. And uh, it was it was intense. You know, first of all, I was like, say what? And I was just a kid, you know, so I I didn't handle it all that well all the time. I was kind of like, what do you mean I have a brother? And, you know, I didn't react as well as I might have. Um, I'll I'll give myself a pass because I was under 10. But, yeah, I mean, that was hard for me to find out that, you know, I wasn't my mom's only kid because we were like a pair, you know? We were single mom and single kid, and that's what I had known my whole life. And then suddenly I was like, hey, you have a brother. But I'm really glad that they got a chance to reconnect. I'm really glad that my mom got a chance to... I don't know, heal from this, because it was really hard on her, and being able to meet her son, and then later on, you know, it took him some time before he was comfortable really having a relationship with her, but then now they're in our life, and, you know, he has a daughter, so she gets to be grandma, and she's just over the moon about it, so it, it's it's lovely to see, you know, it was hard on her, and she, she got that chance, and I'm glad Kate got that chance, because not everybody does. No, I agree. I think it's great that you're also like really happy for her and you can kind of see that from her perspective too. I think it's hard for us to be like kind of outside that thing for our for our parents or, you know, especially for our moms. Yeah, really I was just confused and I was like, it came out of nowhere for me. But he brought, he, he, he was smart. I don't know, he didn't know me yet, so I don't know how he knew, but he brought me a sister act on VHS as a present, and I was like, okay, you're cool. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is one good peace offering right there. So I did some Googling, and as far as I can tell, this uh, Kate was honored by the organization Feminists for Life, a pro-life feminist group, in 2001. Okay, that was 15 years ago. Right, so, so her outlook may have changed in the last 15 years. I'm not going to claim that it has, and I'm not going to claim that it hasn't. No. <laughs> All right, yeah. Yeah, what you would um what you were saying Andy about how your mom, you know, really wanted to meet your your half brother and how he, you know, she finally reached out and he was like kind of wary of it at first. Like I totally felt that when when she gets like the phone call in her trailer and she says you're going to talk to your daughter and she's like I'm coming to visit this week. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god." It took me over a year to be um and I would call periodically and we'd chat took me over a year to meet my biological family on my mom's side, so. I, I mean, my mom was like that, too. She was very much like, when can we meet? Let's meet right now. And David wasn't completely ready for that. They met once briefly, kind of just to see each other. And then, you know, it took him a couple years after that before he was ready to start building something. And it's only been in the last, mm, I would say, five years that they've really built a really strong relationship So it does take time. It's an intense situation. It's a little bit awkward. It's a little bit weird. Um, But in the end, if you're just honest with each other and willing to respect boundaries, it can be an amazing thing. You can suddenly have family you didn't expect to have. Yeah, that's a great way of phrasing it, willing to respect boundaries. I think that's like the most important part because, you know, and I also feel like this is something that is often left out of the like the woman's experience, like the narrative people have of adoption in society is weird and mostly incorrect. Mm. (laughs) And And it just generally a very negative, uh, negative perspective, isn't it? It seems to be. And I mean, yes, there's people who have had negative experiences for sure. But there's also a lot of us that are perfectly okay with like, I was okay with it. My parents have, and I have had our challenges, but I think they always handled adoption really well. Um, you know, I had a little poem on my wall growing up saying his little adoption poem saying you didn't grow under, you didn't grow under my heart, but in it. So that was nice. And, you know, I was never, I mean, they could have easily lied to me. They're all like, you know, dark haired white people. And so am I. <laughs> so it's, it, it's like being in a room of people who are super nice that you happen to be related to because you didn't grow up knowing them. So you don't know them. Mm. It's one of those things where when you really start to examine the language around it, you can understand why there's this sort of negative connotation to it a lot of the time. 
Yeah, it's like a dramatic experience. But but even just how people say, oh, well, she gave up the baby. She gave it up for adoption. Oh. It's like a microaggression. It really is, yeah. Because that's it's not an easy thing to do for anyone involved. No. That it's not a choice that's made lightly for anyone. And I don't have any direct experience with it, obviously. But what you were talking about a little bit before is that we saw that uh, Kate was really excited when her daughter found her. And Andy, your mom was really excited. I feel like most of the stories I've heard about an adoptive parent and, and the child reconnecting, there's always one party that's really, really excited, the one who's been looking for a lot longer, and somebody else who's a little more anxious and maybe, you know, feels a little bit more trepidation about it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a case where you can't actually, like, if even if your bio mom wants to find you, like Kate's, Kate wanted to find Danielle, they have to agree to it. So you kind of have, like, a little preparation, but... You know, usually if, if like in, in my instance, you know, if the adopted child is doing the approaching, I feel like it usually goes better. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I asked Kate at her book launch, um, you know, they, I got up and I said, you know, I'm a whole spiel, adopted Catholic charities, blah, blah. And she was like, really interested in, in that. And I was like, no, I don't want to talk about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> that must have been pretty cool though it was awesome I'm not gonna lie about it <laughs> just being able to say that and just and she said I was brave and I had to sit down and cry afterward but I asked her and I was like you know you, what is your opinion of the Catholic Church being involved in this kind of a thing because I really thought they handled it poorly for my on my side and that was like you know I, I'm a little old I guess I'm a little younger than her daughter like five years younger so they kept really shitty records back then, and I so I was like, that's really ridiculous. It was a very old-fashioned, irritating process, and I asked her if she thought, you know, the Catholic Church should be involved in that anymore, and she said, no, I don't think so. Well, I can't say I blame her after her experience. Sounds pretty awful. Yeah, they like, I mean, if you're, if you're already going through the trauma of giving up a kid, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to at least be able to pick the family that the baby's going to go to. And then they give it to somebody else. I mean, that's got to be like the one comfort you get out of that. To have that taken away from you is sounds like such a horrible slap in the face. I know. They, I mean, I think a lot of it is they want to punish the woman for having had sex, honestly. It definitely doesn't surprise me since we culturally see the whole you can't keep your baby. you That's your problem and you screwed up kind of thing. Unfortunately. And they still have that attitude about sex, which is not winning them any more uh, any more people following the church. People are leaving in droves. I wonder why. Oh my! Seeing some opinions here. Yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Angry Catholic opinions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean ugh, the church is the the institution in the church and the faith of the church in my mind are way different. For my mom, her main goal was she didn't think that she could give him a good life at that time. She didn't think she was old enough. She wasn't financially settled enough. She thought that he would have a better life with a different family. So for her, it was more like she was trying to figure out the best way to care for her child, and she decided that this was the best way. But, you know, I, I understand, like, from the other side of it, how you could be like, well, how come you... How come you gave me away? How come you didn't want me? And it's definitely, at least for my mom, it was not that she did not want him, you know? Um, yeah. But then we meet, and I'm 10 years younger than him, and it's kind of like this this little thing, like, why, why did she keep you and not me? And the reason being that she was 35 at that point, and, you know, financially stable and had a house. and A totally like finally, different place in life. Exactly, and finally felt like she had the tools to to take care of a child. But, you know, when it comes to high emotions like this, I mean, this is something that can really hurt. And you don't always feel rational about that. It's interesting you bring that up because I um, I am part of the Kate Mulgrew fan group. And uh, they recently linked to her daughter Danielle's blog. And she had blogged, when the book came out, she had blogged about what it was like to go through meeting Kate and from the other side. So I really kind of, we got that dual-sided thing. And she actually said she had a lot of anger toward Kate. Which yeah. is, I was surprised because I like, 
personally haven't experienced that as an adopted child. So I obviously I can see maybe why you think, like you said, Andy, the whole, why did you give me up? Why did you have two other kids? Why didn't you give them up? That kind of thing. So it was, it was interesting to read it from her point of view. I think she was really brave in meeting Kate, like five minutes after she found out <laughs> and her whole family came, which also was probably overwhelming for Kate too. Like her whole family they went out to dinner, like with her whole family, like after the initial meeting. I wonder how different it would have been if she wasn't a famous actress. Yeah, I think, well, I don't know if she even would have gotten the information she needed because she was at some sort of gala event and this nun was there representing a charity. That's right. And I feel like it was kind of, you know, well, this could get real public or you could give me the information I want. Which, I mean, hey, she's Kate Mulgrew, or I would be scared of her. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right. I'm not about to say no to that woman. <laughs> she is a woman who has no trouble wheeling and dealing. That's one of the things that I I genuinely enjoyed reading the most about in her book. Just she has a very she seems like a very quick thinker and someone who is very keen to get what she wants. Very driven. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love that story about the agent. She was like, Oh, I met him in the Hamptons. It was a total lie. <laughs> yeah. And they know it, but they're like, We like your Moxie anyway. Well, she had the talent to back it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, Steven Spielberg, like, pretended he worked on, like, a lot. He, like, pretended he had an office. (laughs) There's a lot of hard work and a lot of luck and a lot of creative thinking that goes into making it in Hollywood. And that's if you have the talent. And that's why I think that Kate's career is so impressive. Because she goes to New York to do theater and gets right away our town. And then Ryan's Hope. Like, immediately. I know, right? Who does that? She does, apparently. (laughs) And she does them at the same time, which is absolutely ludicrous. She wasn't even finished Stella Adler's class because she was, like, adamant that they not not take any jobs until they were done. And she was like, too bad I took one. (laughs) She took two. (laughs) Took two, yeah. Way to overachieve, Kate. Make the rest of us look bad. I actually saw her picture on the on the wall at Stella Adler. Really? Yeah, yeah. it's there. That's funny. That must have been very cool. I'm not sure that Kate sleeps. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, she definitely didn't during Voyager, <laughs> and apparently not during Mrs. Columbo. She worked so hard. Yeah, I mean, between doing a play while doing a soap. And then mm-hmm. the Voyager schedule. And then even now, um, I remember when I saw her at Chicago Star Trek convention, she had like flown in for like three hours to talk to the convention and then she had to leave. It was right as the new season of Orange is the New Black had dropped. So she was right in the middle of a publicity tour for that while still maintaining a convention se- uh, schedule while still having a show. I mean, it's just, it's so much. I'm really impressed I would collapse. I couldn't handle going to a convention, much less, like, numerous conventions to speak. I get tired sitting in the audience. I think she <laughs> finds a lot of energy in the audience. Like, like a lot of actors always say that the live audience really com- propels them, you know, and, like, drives them to do better and be better and and also just, like, be more... I, you know, like, be, like, kind of on, you know what I mean? Like, she's, her personality is all turned on, and she's, like, rocking it. I think it's really interesting to hear the Trek actors talk about what their day-to-day was in their own words, because I feel like, I mean, even when it was on, you would see the articles in, like, Star Trek magazine or whatever about how long and arduous these days are and how much time was in makeup, but to to hear someone put it in words of, like, I got up at 3.30 in the morning, I, this was my 45 minutes at home going over my script and then I went to the studio and then I sat in makeup and then by the time I got home, my two kids were already asleep and then I went and did the same thing the next day. For seven years. For seven years. (laughs) And it really like puts a new perspective on it because it, I don't know, I guess it just makes it feel more real. Or maybe it feels more real because when this stuff was airing, I was not part of the workforce. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. But Plus she has all this, like, she talks about all of the dramatic kind of romantic upheaval and, like, 
family stress. Right, because not only is the workday really hard, but that makes literally all of your personal relationships really hard because you're never not at work. That's why that she didn't marry that Italian guy. Like, imagine being her sons. It's terrible. No, but yeah, that's why she that Italian guy didn't want her to keep working. He wanted her to like marry him and have babies. And she was like, gotta go. Bye. And I know it's the way she describes it. We only have her part of the story. But it was just so creepy. <laughs> oh, really? How, was. Yeah. How it was so clear that this guy thought, well, as soon as I get her to marry me, I can control her more. Yeah, that was so uncomfortable. Just to read, I can only imagine how uncomfortable it was to live it. Right? Ugh. I saw this great sticker that somebody stuck on the pole outside St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn when Jillian Anderson was there doing streetcar. It said, don't belong to no city, don't belong to no man. <laughs> I feel like that's very applicable to Kate also. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like something she'd do. But I feel like I feel like Kate's like that too. It's like you can't hold her down. Yeah. Which is a very admirable quality. And she's had a lot of stuff thrown at her. No kidding. And she can spin a good yarn out of it, which is a skill. Well, let's take a second and talk about that because we've talked a lot about some of her stories, but the writing itself is incredible. It is. It's extremely lyrical, it's almost poetic, and yet she still maintains an almost neutral tone talking about things. Like, we talked about how she didn't really have an agenda when it came to talking about her adoption. She was pretty straightforward about this is what it was like and this is what I chose. She does that throughout the book. Mm-hmm. The most striking for me was when I was reading about her sexual assault. Yeah. And... We didn't. She didn't even really write about her feelings about it. She was like, this is what happened, and then this is what happened after that, and this is what the look on his face was. You know, we mm-hmm. almost get more insight into the feelings of her attacker than we do for her. She's just very, almost clinical, except for the fact that the language is so beautiful that it's still artistic, but also straightforward. Well, that is... Up how a lot of women deal with the idea of um, coming to terms with their own sexual assault is to sort of detach themselves and be like, this is what happened. This is what happened afterwards. Uh-huh. And it happened. It's over. And for some women, that's kind of the best way for them to handle it. But again, that shows up so much in her writing, this level of, well, that happened. Here's how it happened. Yeah. Now I'm moving on. I have to say not knowing about that until I read the book. Someone, I I think it might have been kind of mentioned in like a press summary somewhere, like very fleetingly mentioned. I, if I knew about it before I read the book the first time, I definitely didn't remember it because I, I was shocked and it kind of very stunned. upsetting. Yes. It's brutal. Yeah. And having loved her for so long and then see like reading that she went through that, I was upset. I cried. One of the reasons, though, that I think it's so important, and obviously it's up to every survivor to to decide how open they want to be about their experience, but seeing an actress like Kate talk about it, I think makes it more real for people who think it doesn't happen all that often. So the statistics alone... And people who think, well, it's not going to happen to me. Exactly. But, like, the statistics alone mean that you know someone that's been sexually assaulted, without a doubt. Someone you love has been sexually assaulted. Remember that next time you make an off-color joke. Just remember. Yeah, that's basically exactly where I'm going. Like, it becomes a lot harder to push aside and dismiss if you start thinking about the loved ones in your life that might have dealt with this. And there's such a culture of silence around it that I... I'm sure that there are people out there that have never told their loved ones that they have gone through this. You cannot see how hard I'm nodding right (laughs) now, but I'm shaking the table. So, like, Kate talking about this in her book and kind of putting a face on it for maybe some of the fans that didn't think about this very much, and then, like, maybe we don't know her, but we feel like we know her, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... It's a very, it's an intimate story. The entirety of her book is so intimate that she kind of forces you to take the good with the bad and be like, 
yes, this happened to me. If you're going to listen to the rest of it, you have to listen to this too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm seeing that too with um, when it comes to the Nate Parker allegations, having Gabrielle Union speak out and talk about her sexual assault, I think has added a much needed human element to it because... And is incredibly brave of her as a public figure and as a recognizable one. Like, everyone has seen something with Gabrielle Union in it. So it's hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, I don't want people to feel like they have to do that. But I do think it's helpful for people to hear those stories. Absolutely. At her, at her book launch, I have never seen her nervous. And I have seen her a lot. When she's on stage, she's owning it. She's there afterward. You know, maybe she's a little tired, but she's still kind of like, woo, I just did this. And seeing her, she, she said, she's, Augustine Burroughs was the person who interviewed her at, at the uh, book launch. Wow. At, um, Speaking of Union, dramatic biographies. Know, right? and, uh, in Union Square. And, um, you know, she said right before they came on stage, she was like, what have I done? <laughs> I've told it. I've, I've told everybody everything. Yeah. Which is such a personal risk to take um, emotionally and just in general. I think it makes a huge difference, though, and that's why I'm so happy that we do have these survivors that are so brave and willing to speak out. Yeah, thank God, look, right? Look at Brock Turner, okay? Yeah. If if Brock Turner's situation had gone through and we hadn't had that absolutely amazing open letter making the rounds on the internet, do you think that story would be as big as it is? No, no way. That kind of stuff, like the the way the criminal justice system just totally does not get justice for victims, happens every day, all the time. But because we had this person, this amazing person that wrote this open letter and beautiful essay about her experience, people were drawn in by that, and they started to empathize with her in a in, there was no in ignoring her way. after that. Exactly, which is part of why it is so important that we give survivors a voice. Yeah, I'm so glad that this this culture of silence is beginning to be broken down because I think that we can't defeat rape culture without doing that. No, we got to be loud. Yep. It's a shame that we still have to be loud about something that seems like it should be obvious by the year 2016. Kate does get political. I mean, you know, she was she was married to the Ohio County Commissioner. Mm-hmm. She's had a you know more a lot more political in recent years than I think you know in in, in her younger years for sure. Well, at, in Las Vegas, she was talking very candidly about Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how Hillary Hillary invited her to the White House because Janeway was such a great influence for women in science. It's kind of hard to not support Hillary now, knowing then that she, <laughs> that she and Chelsea were like down with Captain Janeway every week, which is awesome. That's right. Hillary's seen Voyager, you guys. If there's no other reason to vote for her than that, then that's what he is. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit more about motherhood. Yeah. yeah. Because I think she frames it with motherhood. So, like, the beginning of the book is all about her mother and how she related to her mother and how she 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 talks about feeling like she wanted more from her mother but also grateful for what she got from her mother. And then the end of the book is wrapping up while she's kind of looking back on whether or not she thinks she has been a good mother to her sons and also her daughter that she gave up for adoption. And I just think that's a very interesting but also powerful way to frame that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting the relationship she describes with her mother because she says that she's the only one in the family or at least the only one of the children in her family who really understood her mother. That must be but, hard to be her sibling and to read this book. <laughs> I mean, maybe they feel the same way. Who knows? Uh, because she she's described her mother as, as pretty eccentric and a little bit weird. But, <laughs> and as an artiste. Yeah. and um, But she also says that she wanted more from her mother and, and talked about, I don't think she, she calls it depression, but her mother's battle with depression and then with dementia. And also how her mom expected her to, like, mother her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was... How she wanted to, to change places. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention that puts so much stress on her. I think, you know, she mentions at the book, beginning of the book about how she hated having to care for her younger siblings. 
So she like was was like, fine, I'll put cold water in this bottle. And then is stuck with an even bigger sibling and her mother. Yeah. She resented having to take care of her baby sister instead of being able to go play and be a kid. Well, she was four. I would be resentful, too. <laughs> right. Well, I also don't understand why you'd let a four-year-old take care of an infant, but that's just me. Well. Yeah. But there was also the, the story she, she tells about someone in her career saying to her, well, you'll never be a natural mother. Yeah, that was incredibly messed up. And something you would never hear someone say to a father who was working. Yes, there's a lot to unpack there. First, I want to know what a natural mother is. Are we talking about, you know, stays at home, cleans and cooks? Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. Like, my mom was not... I guess what you would call the natural mother if we're going for this, like, archetypal idea of, like, the perfect mom. But she also gave me everything I ever needed in terms of support and love. So I consider her a pretty awesome mother. So, like, this, this like, narrow definition of the ways that you can parent and, like, this pressure that we put on parents, but especially mothers, to be this, like, paragon when they're just human and they're just trying to be themselves and take care of another person it's just it's interesting to me it's really you're right grace they never say that to a guy never nope nope you would never hear that it's interesting to me because my mom did stay at home and she was really trying really hard to be the perfect wife and mother and it really just wound up in her unhappiness so she is you know also suffered from depression and also like you know, was on, wasn't very happy, I thought. And then we could tell, my brother and I could tell from the time we were young that she wasn't very happy. You hear that, world? Let's stop trying to force people into a system that's crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are some people that are, want nothing more and really thrive. And if that's what makes you happy and that's what you want, more power to you. But don't assume that that's what everyone needs to function. Exactly. I really like the the phrase that Amy Poehler used in her book, which is good for you, not for me, yes. which is essentially you make whatever choice you think is best for you and I'll make whatever choice I think is best for me. And let's just support each other while we do it. That's yeah. where the good for you part comes yeah, in. <laughs> there's always this whole like the mommy wars or whatever. And, you know, Kate talks about her kids like resenting her and hating Star Trek and none of them's out. Neither of them's watched it. And like. A lot of the Trek kids have said stuff like that. Yeah. It makes sense. They lost their parents, like, huge chunks of their parents' lives to a TV show. That's cold comfort, you know, when, I mean, we love Star Trek and we are grateful for this art, but when you're just a kid and you want your mom, like, you're not going to watch an episode of Voyager and be like, this was worth it. It's got to be huge insult to injury also to know that there's just thousands upon thousands of people out there who totally love your parent for a time where you didn't get to have a parent. That's yeah. gotta hurt real bad. Yeah. And I know we're talking about Kate Mulgrew today, but I really think that the documentary that Rod Roddenberry did deals with this whole idea really well, because he's trying to come to terms with this thing that so many people love that he sees as taking his father away from him. Mm-hmm. So it's for the love of Spock. Adam Nimoy is like the same exact way. Yeah. He had, he was processing this this whole like dad has to go be dad. has to go be a star and he can't be dad right now. Like, mm-hmm. like do you think they call each other the Trek orphans or something? <laughs> There's a club. It's a very specific club. They have yeah. brunch every month. <laughs> it's nowhere near the same thing. And I'm not claiming that it is. But um, my... Dad was a pastor in our small community when I was growing up, and my mom was an, a, you know, small town elected official. So both my parents had this, like, public service aspect to them and knew everybody. And so often... That's gotta be fun. I mean, but it was, it was so often they were dealing with things that, that weren't the family. Yep. And so whenever... It, it's... Again, two totally different levels between yes. my parents and actors. But whenever there's some sort of like public facing public service aspect to something in your family, you begin to, I think, resent whatever that is that is taking their time away. Yeah, from, you, you from do you. hear about that. 
uh, from the children of politicians, from the children of teachers. It's hard to, you know... Share your parent. Yeah. that that's That's it. That's it right there. Imagine sharing them with an entire television audience. So I think there's another big, like, heartbreak in this story that we haven't touched on, even though we did, we have talked a lot about family, and that is Kate's sister, Tess. Yeah. Yeah, who, who developed a brain tumor, and just the doctors determined they couldn't do anything for her, and her, her mom was just her caretaker for, for the last several years, and she lost her sight. And this was I, the sibling that Kate d- describes as being the closest one to her and having all of these inside jokes and them just being so close. And while her, her sister is suffering in this bed in this back room is when Kate is leaving to go to New York for the first time and to start working as an actress. Which yeah. is such a painful juxtaposition to imagine someone living with. Not to mention that they were like, when she passed away, she, her other one of her younger sisters was there visiting her while she was doing the play. And they said, oh, you don't have to come home. It's like, what? What a massive disservice to the both of them. Yeah, yeah they, they were just like, it's, it's done. It's over. Don't bother. Don't, go, don't come home. The funeral's tomorrow. Don't worry about it. It sounds like they were both really robbed of closure there. Yeah. I, I feel like this is something that, I don't know if it's just my family and Kate's family. I'm going to guess it isn't. But this idea of family going through traumatic experiences and not dealing with them and not talking about them and just kind of soldiering on, that reminds me so much of my family. I mean, there were big, huge things that just are never talked about, even now, even when the younger generations where we have gotten to the point where we know that talking about things is a good thing, like, there's still just this this idea that, okay, bad things happen, and you keep going, and nobody needs to talk about their feelings. That's a waste of time. It's not healthy, though. It's, no. it's, no, it's something really that we're not. just taught to do for the sake of pride, and Pride isn't going to pay for your therapy. Well, I think it's also not just pride, but privacy. Everything's very like, and that's a lot of cultures. That's the Irish. That's I'm Irish and German. So that's like the Irish is like, we'll just, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to sweep it. We're going to sweep it under the rug like good Catholics. Well, again, and, I'm Jewish. Our entire culture is based on something bad happens to us. We won't shut up about it. <laughs> that's how we deal. I like that idea better, to be honest. I, I remember like asking my parents for family stories and then being very tight-lipped about it. And just, you know, when I was told something, if it was, could even be perceived to have been an embarrassing story about someone in my family, it was don't tell anybody. Remember, this doesn't leave this family. And so there's, there's a very, like, I, I feel like it's very protective, you know, and very private and, and, it feels to me like like a very cultural thing in like the the conservative Christian Catholic sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I, if it extends outside that community, but I, I feel like people within that community often have that same kind of experience. Yes. My impression of my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, is always has always been that they were quietly miserable for like thirty years. And just never, never felt like they could do anything about it. Like in their life circumstance or like their marriage or all of it? All of it. All of it. I mean, towards the end of her life, my grandmother did get a little bit more open with me. But, you know, it wasn't talked about very much. But I never got the impression that my grandma wanted to do anything that she ended up doing in her life. She grew up during the Great Depression, and then she got a job in a factory, and then she met my grandfather, and she was like, okay, and they got married, and then she had kids, and then she raised her kids. She never got higher education. She never got to travel, and I always feel like she missed out because she was an extremely smart woman, and she, I don't, she never came out and said it, but it was always this feeling of if she had had a choice if she had had a wider range of choices, this is not how her life would have been. And she was an extremely talented person. And, you know, it, it's not like her life was meaningless or empty or anything like that. 
but I never got the impression that she was happy with my grandfather, and I never got the impression that she was happy with her life, but she was not the type to complain. You know, they didn't complain about her, and they didn't talk about the depression that was throughout the family or the drinking problems or anything like that. Right. And I think that's what it boils down to, is that you, you weren't supposed to complain. You were supposed to put on this veneer of everything being perfect. It's pretty yes. incredible that we can just look back on generation of generation of of intelligent women, of talented women, of all kinds of women who just were told, this is what you do. My my grandma, my so my dad is 100% German and his, he's the first generation. Is my, he super German? He's super German. And my German grandfather was 14 years older than my grandmother and he never let her learn to drive Good Lord. He was a very controlling guy from all accounts. Like, he died before I was born, so I never met him. But that was what he was raised with. Like, he didn't know any other way. That's what the example he saw from his parents. That the woman wasn't permitted to do certain things, so he wouldn't let my grandma do certain things. When I read um, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, this, this idea of to create art or to be successful uh, women and people in general, but especially women, need to have their own space and their own life and like the ability to support themselves before they can right. make art. And it just starts to make you think about like, what would my grandma have done if she had been born today? Would she have been a great writer? Because I've read her writing. It's spectacular. Would she have been the next Virginia Woolf? Who knows? How many scientists and artists and amazing, amazing women that could have changed the world just never got the opportunity because of when and where they were born? It's really frustrating if you start thinking about it. Indeed. It really yeah, is. Absolutely. And this, that people wonder why we have to celebrate women's contribution to culture. It's because it has only been acknowledged for like 50 years. Yeah, we, we're still and, fighting that fight. And then how many women were extraordinary and their contributions were lost? Like, history doesn't remember them because they didn't bother. They got Rosalind Franklin. Exactly. Yep. That makes me enjoy the picture of, uh, what's her name standing next to all that code that got the astronauts to the moon? even more Margaret cool. Hamilton Margaret Hamilton thank you I know I wrote about her and I, I blanked on her name I think that's what's really cool about right now is that there is this kind of a push to uncover these stories and there are are books that are coming out there's I think it's fabulous there's what's the new one it's like the girls of atomic city I'm not sure if that's the full name of it but it is about the black women who were doing the math behind the atomic bomb but there are several out there. There's, I think there's another one called Rocket Girls, maybe. There's one about uh, the women who were working in medical labs. And it's it's often doing calculations and doing a whole lot of math and coding. The grunt work. Yeah. It's also like, have you read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? Which is yes. fascinating. Yes. Everybody read that book. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a lot of really cool shows that are coming out or have been coming out. There's uh, The Bletchley Circle, which is a Ooh, English yeah. show about code breakers in World War II that it's started badass. solving crime. There's Bomb Girls, which is a Canadian show about the women in World War II who were building bombs in the factories. I, I mean, Bomb Girls so much. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. I love the idea of us taking these women Reclaiming back. Reclaiming history, yeah. Reclaiming them, yes. And putting them back into our art, being like, they were there. Their stories were amazing. Not to mention their families are probably like, finally. <laughs> and yeah. in a way, that's kind of what we get in this book. We get to hear Kate talk about a mother who was undervalued by her time and creative and smart and funny. And we get to hear her spoken about with all those qualities. Oh, and it made me so mad when I read about her father be cheating and then wanting her to keep it a secret. Ah, well, oh. yeah. She said she only wrote this book after her parents died. I could see why. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we get to see we get to see her sort of, a, it felt like an attempt to give her mother full credit, and that was very beautiful. Yes. Yeah. You can definitely see her mother's influence, right? There's, from the, even from that very early story of the, the poetry reading, you know, and she told her, you can be a mediocre poet or you can be a fantastic actress. And encouraging her and never saying, well, 
you need a backup job. Like, <laughs> how many of us who wanted to pursue anything in the arts heard that? I heard yep. it. I heard it all the <laughs> you time. <know? laughs> you need a backup job. I actually once had musician Holly Golightly tell me that. Mm. <laughs> my mom keeps telling me that to quit my job and become a writer. So she's kind of the opposite. <laughs> but yeah. I saw Roxanne Gay at the Brooklyn Historic Society and she said you need a, you need a full-time job if you're going to write. That's why she's yeah. a professor. So just wait till you've got tenure and then you can do whatever you want. I think it's really cool that people are going back and finding Star Trek Voyager because of Orange is the New Black. I know. She's your prison mom, but she's also your captain. (laughs) She could be both. Well, she actually, Nikki makes a great quote. She says, I thought I was like, you know, your Spock or something. Like she like, she makes a Trek reference about Kate. And I was like, that's right. They did that on purpose. (laughs) Of course. Overall, I'd say we all enjoyed this book. Yes. 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 I read it in a day because I was seeing her the next day and I was like, I got to know all of it. I also read it in a day. Once I started reading it, I could not put it down. And I want to throw out too that if you're in, if you finish Kate's book and you're like, oh man, that was awesome. I'd like another one. Should real read Nichelle Nichols's book too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little less uh, literary, but it's still really fascinating. She has some cool stories too, and uh, her ex- exploits in NASA are amazing. Yeah. And Kate revealed at uh, Star Trek Las Vegas that she's working on two books. She's working on it, yeah. She's working on what she thinks is going to be a novel and also mm-hmm. maybe a second memoir. Well, she only got to Voyager, so there's lots more to go. Well, it's really funny yeah. because I interviewed her backstage, and my interview's not out yet, but maybe by the time we host this podcast, it will be. Uh, she was like, "Do you want? To, what, do you want to hear about my time on Voyager in a book?" And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> uh, yeah Yeah. (laughs) she was like but why and I was like I think I you know people are always like all about the like gossip and what was going on and who's sleeping with who or whatever I don't care about that shit I just want to know what it was like to embody Captain Janeway while it was happening (laughs) and I told her that and she was like oh okay like this had not occurred to her but (laughs) that we all want to know but when we're all reading Kate Mulgrew's Janeway book we'll know Amy is who to thank for that no I really I think she like maybe underestimates a little bit her popularity yeah how can she all these women come up to her at conventions and are like I'm a scientist because of Janeway I don't know I mean I I think it's really difficult to to overstate the importance of that character in pop culture but uh yeah also i mean her writing is beautiful just her style and i think that comes from we we hear how much she reads and how much of you know classical plays she loves to do and i think that that's all a bit of an influence there but if you have read the book or not read the book and haven't heard the audiobook which she reads herself it is absolutely stunning so I, I highly encourage you to to pick that up if you're interested in it, or at the very least, listen to the sample that's up on audible.com. <laughs> so yeah. you can just get a taste for it and see if it's something you might be interested in. Because to hear her tell these really personal, really intimate stories in her own voice, in her own inflection, you can hear the emotion in her voice and how she wants these stories to be to heard and understood as you're listening to them. And it's just so lovely. Yeah, I listened to the first six chapters on audiobook before I switched to to reading, and it was lovely. I think hearing her, I have heard, I have heard um, the book, but I have I didn't listen to all of it. I just listened to like a couple chapters, like you did, Andy. And I think hearing some, an author read their own work is like the next level. It's so cool. Yeah. But you're also getting an insight into how they're thinking it as they're writing it, like where the inflection should be and what the most important part of that story is. And it's just fascinating. Well, before we head down this rabbit hole completely, is there anything anybody else wants to add about Born With Teeth? It's good. Read it. It's good. Read it. It's got pictures of like her life, which I thought was nice that she from her like personal collection that she included. Oh, I love that in memoirs. I do too. It has bite. (laughs) (laughs) It has bite. I like that. All right. Awesome. So we're going to wrap it up for today. Amy, where can everybody find you on the internet? Ah, on the internet. I am many places these days. I am tweeting at 
at Lightstar1013 because Shoes and Starships does not fit in a Twitter handle. Um, <laughs> my blog is shoesandstarships.com. I am also posting with Legion of Leia, and I also write for Screen Prism, although I've been really naughty about that lately. All right, Grace, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank, and sometimes on Tumblr at GraceHeartStarTrek. <laughs> and Andy? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at FirstTimeTrek. Awesome, and I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor, that's S-P-A-L-T-O-R, or over at AnomalyPodcast.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Women at Warp, you can find us on Twitter at Women at Warp, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Women at Warp, by email at crew at Women at Warp.com, or by leaving a comment on the blog at, wouldn't you know it, Women at Warp.com. And I think that's it for us today. Thanks for joining us.